Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon, everybody. This is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. We are here inside the small and intimate studios on the 14th floor of the National Press Club, joining me as they do every Tuesday. Uh, here in the studio with me, he is the man who is the former member or the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs, who served at last count under four presidents, Long-time Senate staffer, long-time Washington insider, he is Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us from the farthest reaches of Virginia, I believe, he is the retired one-star admiral from your United States Navy. He is the man that we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Hello, Admiral Ken. Hello, Justin. How are you? Uh, doing fantastic. Doing fantastic. Hey, let's uh, – I don't even know where to begin on this. I mean, Seriously. There's so much to talk about. What do we? Where do we start with? I want to. I want to let Alan start off. Where do we? Can we even go with this? So we might as well start with the mooch, simply because uh, Anthony Scaramucci. Because you know, it was just as it was starting to get fun, it was over. Um, there were there were numerous people pointing out the uh, the famous line from the from the Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody, Scaramucci, Scaramucci, can you do the Fandango? Well. It turns out that the Mooch could do the Fandango, but only for his 15 minutes of fleeting fame. And now it's over. We're not even going to get a chance to see what Saturday Night Live would have done with him. He was there, and, was and then he was gone. It, was, uh, I, it has been equated to it takes less time. If you have erectile dysfunction longer than the time it took him to fill out his term, you have to go to the doctor. I mean, this this is a problem. Admiral Ken, I mean, other than the fact that we don't want to go on a whole average circuit here, but the, the thing about it was, there was I guess either false hope or was there just blind faith in Donald Trump in thinking that Scaramucci particularly after his first day, was going to be a solution to his comms office problems. Well, I don't think he was particularly looking for, um, um, I guess, Scaramucci to uh, solve all of his comms office problems. Uh, and even if he was, um, you know, at the point at which uh, Scaramucci was garnering more attention and more fame than the president, um, History should have taught us that his days were going to be numbered. Um, you know, he—it was all—it was—it was the moot show, you know, for about a week, and there was no way that uh, POTUS was going to put up with that. And so, yeah, and, and um, 
Well, let me just jump in real, real quick, uh, Admiral Ken, because let's go back on the timeline of what exactly happened. Uh, if you recall, uh, a week ago last Friday, uh, former press secretary uh, and now possible Dancing with the Stars contestant, Sean Spicer, was uh, resigned stating that he wanted to give the new comms office and the press secretary and the new comms director uh, a clean slate after he realized that he was going to be without a chair when the music stopped. Uh, He resigns, walks out, uh, leaves the administration. Uh, Anthony Scaramucci, I guess you could describe him as a uh, Wall Street billionaire, money financier. He's not a billionaire. He's a rich guy. He's a rich guy. But he's not a billionaire. He ran a hedge fund. He's he's worth them. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, I don't know, maybe in a couple of hundred. We don't know a million. But what's but important is, but what's important is no, no communication strategy experience. None. Well, right. well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So he, he's, a, he's a Wall Street wealthy guy who has dabbled in politics. His communications skills have been, uh, such as they are, have been uh, prior to this uh, uh, available to people who watch uh, a couple of the Fox shows, News. the financial news shows. Um, he uh, he's he's comfortable in front of a camera, um, and uh, and even in his very first. Uh, exposure uh, once he was named to be the head of communications, it was interesting. I had not seen the guy before, and I watched him, and I thought, you know, he's better than I thought he would be in front of the camera. That he was basically Donald Trump, younger version of Donald Trump. Well, not the mannerism, not really. I mean, later people showed some of the <laughs> the common mannerisms. He was he was fairly glib. He was quick. He he knew just, you know, a thin veneer of information, but often that's enough and that. And I thought, oh, interesting. Well, you know, good luck with this. And and then you were you started to tell the story where, you know, it looked like Spicer's out. We heard reports that both Priebus and Bannon had opposed this and had, right. had opposed it for a long time. Let's continue down the timeline. So the timeline then goes that uh, Scaramouche comes in, gives his first uh, – his first uh, in-front-of-camera time in the press room. Uh, mixed reviews. But then we move forward. Uh, he announces that uh, the, the lovely Miss Huckabee will be, remain as uh, press secretary uh, for the foreseeable future. Then we continue down the road, and then, it appeared, then, then the New Yorker story happens. I mean, he had uh, several almost weird interviews on CNN with uh, Andrew Cuomo, which were kind of on. I don't know if anybody saw that. But it was the New Yorker interview where he called up uh, a reporter from the New Yorker and basically went on this vulgar, foul-mouthed tirade uh, and he didn't repeat any of this stuff without putting the X button on the show this week. And it was published because apparently, in the lack of comms experience, um, apparently Mr. Scaramucci forgot to use the words, hey, this is off the record. From there, it gets a little bizarre. 
we then go down the road of uh, this report gets out. In the meantime, there is a battle going on between not only Scaramucci and Reince Priebus, but apparently Reince Priebus is subtly being pushed out by several forces. One report says that uh, Jared and Ivanka were the ones who were the reasons for the push-out. We've heard other uh, reasoning that said the president just wanted to do a weapon of mass destruction and clear everything out. And then, surprisingly, we hear that General uh, John Kelly, the Secretary of Homeland Security, is replacing Reince Priebus as the uh, chief of staff at the White House. Within, what, three hours, it is announced that Anthony Scaramucci is, no, you're shaking your head, no? No, we knew about Kelly last Friday. Oh, that's true. And, that's true. And and he hadn't taken over yet, but he was named. He was sworn in. He was within three hours of Pre- swearing in. Priebus had, had, stepped, uh, had, stepped had, had stepped aside saying, you know, it's, it's time give the president a new, uh, you know, uh, a chance to to refocus. Obviously, he was pushed out. This is this weird business about people being fired or nudged out or encouraged out versus them resigning. And uh, so officially, as did Spicer, they resigned. Um, uh, but but it was the handwriting was on the wall. Well, you know what's funny? But, but here's what's funny. Well, go ahead. Okay. Well, here's what's funny about that is if you notice. If you notice Sean Spicer's uh, comments when he resigned, he said, I'm resigning to give him a clean slate. Right. If you look at uh, Scaramucci's uh, resignation comments, it was to give the chief of staff a clean slate. Right. There's a lot of slate cleaning going on here. The the, the thing is, with, with Spicer, it's not it, – I think he saw the handwriting on the wall. I don't think he was told – you're done. That that that's a little unclear. What's very clear is that the Mooch Scaramucci was told, "You're done. You're done." At which point he then tried to make this face-saving comment that, you know, it was good for him to step aside. In the meantime, we know that ever since this New Yorker story, first of all, he said, "I got to clean up my act. I can't talk like that. That was that was a mistake." And then he blamed the reporter for. Violating, I you know, trust any reporters it, ever again. Even though it's pretty clear that he was too ignorant yeah. in this whole world to know that you need to establish ground rules before you speak to reporters. Reporters are very good about observing and understanding. Occasionally, they screw up in offering, but, but but they basically do because that's the only way folks are going to talk to them. Um, and, but but. But uh, Scaramucci, uh, just one more reflection, and, and, and the Admiral referenced this earlier, he had no, no real communications experience, no strategic planning experience, a little bit of TV time, but not in this high-level, high-visibility White House uh, press office. He's never worked in the fishbowl. He was completely unprepared for any of that, as was visible by the stuff he said and how it got reported. So, Ken, when we we see all this going down with Scaramouche and we see the changes that are going on with General Kelly, is it fair to say, which is against the thought process of the president, but is it fair to say that this White House and this administration – is in chaos. 
Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think to, to try and say that it's not would be, uh, you know, possibly one of the best uh, arguments that anybody could try and put forward. I, I absolutely think it's in chaos. And um, I think part of the, the challenges I think that General Kelly has got in front of him um, is, 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 a, is a situation that's best uh, explained like this. So uh, Scaramucci comes in, um, and there's a free-for-all between himself and Rice uh, about comments he's made about Rice Priebus. Um, uh, Sarah Huckabee is, is on screen saying the president likes it this way, and then within just a few hours, business hours, it, it, the whole world is turned upside down. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the first thing that, that, uh, that General Kelly probably had on his list was, hey, you, you, you want me as your chief of staff? This guy, Scaramucci's got to go. And I think what's really going to be the interesting question is how much control can General Kelly get over the portion of the White House that's in his purview? Uh, and how well, let's, long? Let's hold off on that. And let's, and let's how, hold off on that because I want to talk. I want to talk about uh, General Kelly separately on what's going on. I want to. Fo- I want to focus a little bit right now on the comms room situation. Well, let's, again, so so who, ask, who, who, who is now? Who is now the, the new communications director? Is it Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Um, uh, you know, uh, everybody is going to roll up to the new chief of staff. That's great. That's awesome. But uh, I think the answer, direct answer to your question as evidenced by the example I just gave, is that, yeah, this, this, this organization is in chaos. Is, Alan Moore, it seems to me that the focus of the president was that everything's working fine, it's just I've got a dysfunctional comms division. Is this a bigger problem than just having a bad comms office? Oh sure. What, it, 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 the, it's just, it's the, a leadership problem. The comms people. Well, we've talked about this at great length. We all think that 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 the president is the is the key uh, ingredient of the the the, 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 the main problem. Um, the, the communications people weren't 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 in the room. They weren't given good guidance. And then every time they would say something, if they could say something, they were at great risk of of being undercut uh, within the day. Um, that's not that's not a comms problem. That that is a, a, a problem at the top. Um, on the chaos issue, that has a lot to do with this this fundamental disorganization, the the, the apparent preference of the president to allow access by a number of people to his office to meetings almost without discipline, without order, and. It was really hard to get anything done. One can one one can argue whether that is is chaos or fundamental dysfunction of an organization. What 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 General Kelly has apparently done, and it would be logical, is he would say, "Mr. President, uh, I know you've asked me about this job before, supposedly right. back in May." You know, this whole question of who caused Rice Priebus to go. That wasn't Scaramucci's doing. That was the president's doing, and he's been frustrated for some time at the at the the, the lack of productivity, at the focus of the press on disorganization, and so on. So, so they bring Kelly in to establish some order. Well, establishing order means you have to have an understanding of what it, what the chain of command is, 
who's in charge, who gets to call certain shots, who gets to make personnel decisions, and presumably Kelly got some uh, some agreement with the president about how this would work. What we've gotten is, in talking with some folks that are close to the situation, is that apparently uh, General Kelly had, as you had said, had been asked since as far back as May or June about this. Uh, we heard that he finally, the president finally went to him and said, look, I've got to fix this problem. He, the, the general said, look, I will do this, but you do it under my terms. Everybody reports to me. There's no question. The second I find out that nobody reports, and that includes Jared and Ivanka, everybody reports to me. Uh, no more of this side door access crap. If they want to see you, they go through me, and they go through me to get to you. And there is a definitive lockdown chain of command in this organization. If any of these are violated, I'm out. And apparently the president agreed to that. I mean, the, the, the bigger question is, does, is Donald Trump finally having that wake-up call we've been waiting for for six months? Yes or no. Um, he realizes there's a problem. The fact that he denies that there's a problem is in his nature. Um, it would it would be a, a a reflection or acknowledgement of weakness on his part. So he says we're really productive. Nobody's done what we've done. There's no chaos around here. But but he knows uh, because because of what his people say, what the press says, what outside friends say, what the Congress says that it's a mess. We don't know who to talk to. You guys need to focus yourselves. And so. At some level, he understands he's got a problem. I think we need to be careful characterizing what what General Kelly did or did not uh, order, demand, require. They, uh, he's not stupid. He's going to. He knows he's got a challenging uh, uh, commander in chief. He also is a patriot who feels like he can make a difference here. He also knows that for him to succeed. He's going to have to get certain understand, a certain level of understanding with the president, and the president has got to live up to it at risk of losing but the mistake. general on whom he has put but no mistake, so much. General Kelly has a reputation. Admiral Ken, you, you were in the flag corps under the Department of the Navy with uh, uh, General Kelly. Uh, general Kelly has a reputation of cleaning up bad situations, whether being assigned to a command to get it straightened out or to help a joint command problem. Uh, that, he's, a, he's got a reputation in the community as being a fixer. Is that going to be beneficial to him? Can he fix? We know he can fix a military problem. Can he fix a White House problem? I think that uh, last week was 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 uh, pivotal in our country if people were paying attention because we got to see two great Americans stepping forward. First, John McCain, uh, and then now uh, General John Kelly, uh, who, by the way, uh, Alan, right on target. This guy is a patriot. Uh, this man lost a son in combat. This man uh, was one of the main leaders of the surge in Iraq that uh, led to uh, success before we pulled out. And, um, and this guy has got a fantastic reputation uh, in the services. I, I was at a dinner this past weekend um, where everybody was uh, maybe dinner, uh, big thumbs up on, on General Kelly running, uh, going in. My only caveat is this. You know, we, we tend to, we being people, we 
tend to, you know, when there's a, a spot or ray of hope, of good news in a in a world or sea of bad, we tend to cling to that 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 one thing that is giving us a good ray of hope. Um, the comment that one of my fellow flags made was that he's happy that Kelly's in there because he's in there for the country. And my re- my response to that was, that's great, right up until uh, the president realizes that that. General Kelly is in it for the country and not for the president. And so his success, I think, will basically be decided as to whether the president has really figured out that he's the part, he's part of the problem or not. And if he doesn't, then I think you'll see General Kelly go the same way as Ranks Priebus and Sean Spicer and the Mooch. You, you agree with that, Alan Moore? Yeah, I think Ken's dead on correct. It, it's, you know, you, we, we can talk about the that John Kelly, that General Kelly has done, and he always knew that he was backed up fully by the people above him. Um, and he was pretty high up. So, you know, it'd be, I've got uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who's with this, or the Secretary of Defense is behind this, uh, not, to, not to mention the President. You always had the backing of the next level up. He's now next to the top. And we don't know if the general is going to have the full backing and acceptance over time of the person above him, who also happens to be down the hall. Um, and, and it remains to be seen. He may well succeed and he may well not succeed, and they're going to have to come to an accommodation. You know, we, I was suggesting we've got to be careful describing how it's going to work inside the White House. We, it's one thing to say everybody reports through uh, General Kelly, but that does not mean that he's, the president is not going to walk out of his, of his office, walk down the hall, and talk to someone when he's got an issue or question. People, presidents do that, and they need to be able to do that. What they need to do, though, in doing that is have some sense of the overall operation and make sure that, that, that when he says something significant that that is shared, you try to minimize the, the freewheeling nature of things and you really try to minimize the open door where people can walk in. The, yeah, the side door access stuff, I, I think, has got to go away. Well, his daughter and his son-in-law are going to see him on the weekends. They're going to be seeing him. And, that, and that's fine, but as long as the president understands, look, what you see on family time is family time. You cannot be doing this off the books, out of the office policy directives. You, you, you know, here's the thing is, when we look at something like General Kelly, um, you know, General Kelly is not an idiot. I mean, General Kelly is a very bright man. But when we look at the other very powerful chiefs of staff, we look at Baker under Reagan. We look at Andrew Card under Bush. Uh, you look at any number of, of, of great chiefs of staff that we look at, what made them successful is they, you know, they, 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 it wasn't they held the president on a tight leash. They just knew how much freedom they could give the president before they had to interact. They knew exactly there were certain meetings you don't let the president just do a walk-in on. There are certain ones that he's allowed to. You know, it's understanding your president. The problem, I think, and Ken, I'll go to you on this, 
is can General Kelly read the president enough to take that formula of being a great chief of staff and putting it into this administration? Hell, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, you know, having, having once been a chief of staff, and you, you and I talked about this offline, you know, we're, we're in a whole new uh, ball, ball game here. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I've been paying attention to what goes on in the White House since I was in my early, in my, uh, my, my, my early 20s. And we've never seen, I've never seen anything like this before. You know, I, I've, seen like, I've seen people like General Kelly uh, most of my career. Um, and, and, and I think Alan, Alan hit, on it, hit on it very, very well. We do well when we've got a, a problem area to fix when we know we've got the backing of our superiors uh, um, to, to, to do that thing. Uh, we don't do well, no one does well when they're undercut, when they're sidestepped, uh, and when they're only given part of the story. Um, and the history of the Trump administration to date is that this is what goes on. Uh, is people are undercut, they're sidestepped, and they're not given the entire story. I don't think Lance Priebus, I don't think Sean Spicer, I don't think any of the people that have left the White House or the administration up until now uh, can look back on their time and say, yeah, I, I had the full blessing and support of my boss, and I always clued in and, and always knew what was going on. If, if we didn't, if, if they had that situation, we would be talking about this right now. So I don't know. I, I I wish General Kelly the best. I think that, um, you know, a, an officer of his caliber um, stepping up, you know, to, to take a, a, this kind of a job, and, and these guys always take the hard jobs, um, I think is, is, is noteworthy. Um, whether it's a fool's mission or not, yeah, we'll, we're, time will tell. Go ahead. Yeah, there, there's, there's no simple formula that one some cookie cutter role of chief of staff that you could bring in and say that's what you need to work the president the principal has to buy into the deal one and two the chief of staff has to sublimate himself he can't focus on the the notion that that he or could be she might be the second most powerful people in the country, um, they have to figure out how to adapt to the particular behaviors and preferences of the chief. We have had chiefs of staff in, in recent years who didn't do very well. Under, under President Obama, he brought in Bill Daley, who had been a member of the cabinet, well-respected guy, it not didn't work. It, it, it was a it was a bad fit, and I don't blame either one of them for the fact that it didn't work. And uh, but it didn't. They recognized it after less than a year, I think. And then Dennis McDonough, who had been with, who's in the White House, National Security uh, staff, had been with the president um, in the Senate uh, when, when he was a senator and worked for Tom Daschle. He became the chief of staff. His strength was he really understood the president, had an enormous amount of loyalty from the president and loyalty to the president, and his focus was on the staff part of being chief of staff, not the chief part, not I'm all-powerful, I'm the guy, you've got to mess with me, I'm going to focus on making but this place work. I don't think that's the situation here with General Kelly. I mean, you don't get to become a four-star general 
by taking that approach in your command style. I think this is more of a, not I'm the most important person, but I have to set some discipline, which is a word that is not used in describing a Trump White House. There's no discipline in that White House. Well, and I think that's what he's trying to do. I, you know, he's all, all I'm saying, all I'm saying is everyone is different. And Kelly couldn't be more different than Priebus in terms of his background, his age, the kind of level of instant respect that he generates with this president. This, res- this president uh, respects two things in particular. One, people who made a lot of money. Two, military leaders. After that, it's a hodgepodge of folks that he seems to uh, respect. Well, people who, have a, who, who look great, who, who sound great, um, who are, if you will, loyal to him. That's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of, of behavior that this president has that you don't normally expect. But we've had, we've, we've had people with command power, Donald Reagan, was a failure for uh, President Reagan, uh, President Reagan, um, and and he was strong and it didn't work. Right. Um, but James Baker did. James James Baker did in the beginning. Howard Baker did after Don Reagan failed. Ken Duberstein did. I mean these, but but these were were people who were not caught up in their authority, their power, which Don Reagan seems to be, but right. I, I'm not trying to pick on anyone. And I don't I think General Kelly has been around long enough. He he is not coming in to kick ass and take names. Right. He's he's bigger than that, really. He's he's been around. He has seen most uh of the kinds of different management challenges one 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 could possibly imagine. And now it's his chance to come to an accommodation with the president as to how things work, what the president does. It's not, it's not just get it cleaning up the meetings or the reporting structure. What's going to happen with Twitter? Right. What's going to happen with his phone calls to friends saying, what do you what think, do you about, think about, about this? What right. do you think about that? Let's, let's, All of which get reported to the press. All right. Let's, let's take a break real quick. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion on the White House and chaos and the transitions that are happening over at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest. This is Back from Politics Live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. on Block Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, Shelley's Back Room has been hosting backroom politics for seven years. Seven years. It's still unbelievable we've been doing it that long. But make no mistake about it, Shelley's Back Room is one of a kind in Washington, D.C. Shelley's is a comfortable retreat for cigar aficionados and those who simply want to unwind. The casual but elegant space features soft lighting, cozy couches, and overstuffed chairs. Shelley's Back Room is a cigar-friendly establishment, but the -the state-of-the-art air purification system keeps the atmosphere comfortable for smokers and non-smokers alike. Sit back and enjoy yourself while chatting with friends or watching one of the eight high-definition TVs, or come by any Tuesday, enjoy your favorite cigar or one of the signature cocktails, and watch how backroom politics is made. Convenient to public transportation and the sights of the nation's capital, 
Shelly's is easily dividable to accommodate intimate gatherings or large-scale special events. Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob says, it's the place to be. Politics. And we're back here live at the National Press Club and the 14th Floor Studios. I am joined by uh, Alan Moore on the line is Admiral Ken Kerr and I. We're talking about the chaos in the White House that's happened over the past 10 days. Uh, you know what? We were just lamenting off the air how bad a week Anthony Scaramucci had or how bad and weird his July was. So in July, you are served with divorce papers from your wife, your wife has a child, you then get a job in the White House, you are then fired from that job in the White House, all in the month of July. That's, that's And furthermore, he, he, he divested himself of this company that he had created, this hedge fund, with the, with the thought months ago that, that he was going to get a job in the administration and probably in the White House. So he actually set about doing this many months ago, and then he found he was stopped. Um, uh, by 
arguably uh, Priebus and maybe Bannon and who else. He used a particularly crude term for what kind of blocking occurred yeah. for him. Yes, he did. Uh, a word that most of us have never heard of, but we've heard it now. And accused, and and accused, of, and accused Bannon of doing unnatural things to himself. Oh, yeah. He, as he was, uh, in effect, uh, <laughs> arguably doing the same thing to the president right. uh, on the air for all of us to watch. Um, so so he he couldn't get the job in the White House that he thought he was going to get and maybe had been led to believe he would get. We don't know. And and he got a job temporarily at the Export-Import Bank, uh, an organization that provides financing for U.S. manufacturers who want to ship stuff over to the But a, 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 an organization, uh, that an agency that is in itself under some attack, um, so it was reported that that uh, after he was summarily dismissed um, uh, a couple, uh, yesterday, that that he inquired as to uh, whether that he still had the job at XM and was apparently reportedly told um, you are no longer working for the administration. So it was one more, one more, one more. One more. But you know something. If, we're not going to be able to see what Saturday Night Live would have done with him. We're not going to, you know, we got Colbert, Colbert, we got all, the coast. Colbert did, did, Fallon did, Kimball did. They all had their, they all had a little bit of fun, but but they kind of ran out of uh, material um, to a little, a little faster than they might have liked. But you know something? I think in an odd way, we may all, we'll see what happens with General Kelly. We we may all be indebted. To Scaramucci because he did one thing that we had not seen before in this White House. What's that? He united everyone to get him out against him. <laughs> so Ivanka, Jared, who were apparently saying, "Bring him in. I think he could be helpful." Right. They turned when they saw this stuff. Mrs. Trump, Melania Trump, apparently was absolutely offended and furious. Um, and then, of course. Priebus, Bannon, Spicer, no matter, were 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 grossly offended, um, and and supposedly anybody that just just about anybody that the president like might call time, and say, but, but, but any other get time, him out of there. But like just any other time, we see a dysfunctional unit come together in unity. It lasts about two seconds. Which this did well. We have, this did because now we're back to now they're back to shooting each other. Well, we don't know where we are. We don't know where we are now. We we what we've got now is a new deal, a new a new order. I don't know how long it's going to last. I think it's going to last a little while. I think that 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 General Kelly is not the kind of guy who. If things start to unravel in the coming weeks and months and the president doesn't live up to his agreement, he will say, Mr. President, good luck to you. I'm done. I don't think the president wants that. Now, you have a problem right now, Alan, where you still have the underlying tension between Jared Kutcher, who arguably is the most trusted advisor that the president has. He's a son-in-law, granted, married to his daughter, granted, but he is the go-to guy in the administration for Trump. And you've got the tension, the ongoing tension between him and Bannon. 
that's not going away. I, I don't. I don't know that we know that. They, those guys are operating in different spheres. Kushner has a particular set of responsibilities. He's got more than enough, especially for somebody who lacks experience in government, to fill all of his time many times over. What was Kushner's role in replace and repeal of Obamacare? He didn't have one. He was absent. As far as I know, he's got no meaningful role on the issue of tax reform. So far as I know, he's got no meaningful role on increasing the debt limit. And neither does Ivanka. They don't all play in every sandbox. It's not, it's, wait, wait, wait. There's, I think to, to segregate that and stovepipe it like that, I think, is unrealistic. In this way, knowing, that, knowing, what, knowing what we know, knowing what we're hearing, and in talking to people in the administration, they are, it's not that they're directly involved in the day-to-day policy, but make no mistake about it is, that circle of people that the president goes to to get advice and direction from is tiny and very insular to the president. That includes Kushner, Ivanka, and his circle of friends, this, this circle of life that they call it, that he makes these phone calls at well, 3 a.m. You know, he, it, 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 we can say whatever we want or think whatever we want about Priebus. Priebus was in with the president multiple times a day. Bannon's in there multiple times a day. Uh, Jason Miller's in there multiple times a day. Kellyanne Conway is apparently still in there. Hope Hicks, the mystery lady, is in there constantly. There, there's, and then there's then Gary Cohn, the 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 head of the National Council. There's a there's a bunch of different people, all of whom have different points of view on these things, and who are not in agreement. And there is no cohesive organizational structure that would force you to discuss one subject with everybody who you care. At, at the same time. But Hamilton, you have to admit, though, that the fact that you have, and, 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 I, and I don't want to use the word nepotism, but it, it, it applies. The fact that you have this level of nepotism at the highest levels of the White House, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump Kushner, these are people that have daily, intimate, direct access to the president. We know that they have influence on uh, any sort or any realm of options in the political operations of, of the Trump administration. Does the, does the fact that he surrounds himself so tightly with family, that close family, put the administration at a disadvantage? Well... Only if they're stupid. I mean, you know, not, and I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm not trying. What? Really? Only if they're stupid? Well, let let me let me explain myself. Okay, so having every president, every president, as in, and then every leader, uh, will surround themselves with, with, with people whose advice and counsel they value. If they surround themselves with people uh, whose advice and counsel is good, then they tend to do well in that leadership role. If they surround themselves with people whose 
counsel is bad or stupid, they don't do well. So, um, you know, if you look at John Kennedy, you know, who had Bobby uh, as one of his closest advisors during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's nothing wrong, per se, with, with having, um, him, having uh, surrounded himself with, uh, with people that he trusts and, and who, for now, uh, offer counsel that he values. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think the real, the real, one of the real metrics of how well um, this presidency um, will turn the, the, the corner um, with these latest, latest personnel changes is measuring the number of leaks that, uh, that have come out. If the leaking uh, continues to the point where if the president and Jared Kushner are Kushner are having uh, you know a, 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 a conversation on Air Force One, and that is you know somehow leaked out to the New York Times almost as the plane lands, then the the uh, I can tell you that the president is going to lose going to lose his being, and and we'll be right back here uh, next week talking about some other crazy thing that's come up, that's gone on out of out of the uh, out of the White House. So, uh, you know, answer your question. No, I don't think they put them at a disadvantage if their counsel is good. And quite frankly, I think way too much bad stuff, most of it fueled and created by the president, has gone on uh, to be able to say, you know, whether these people are bringing any kind of value to the party or not. I don't know at this point. Just, I mean, we just can't get away from the radio stuff from week to week. To, 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 to add on to what to what Ken said, and I and I agree with him um, that that you, it's not possible to simply say per se it's bad to have family members there. It's risky because when you discover you got a problem, whether it's bad advice um, or or you're being investigated by the special counsel, no, or behaviors or behaviors that trouble you if you think that somebody's leaking or whatever. That, that it's really hard to dismiss a family member or to shunt them aside. Now, you'll notice that it's just his daughter and son-in-law who are on the inside, and I don't, I don't see that circle expanding. It, it, it's, so it, it, in, in, in terms of their advice, is the advice good or not? Is the advice taken or not? It's pretty well publicly, it's been publicly discussed that – that Ivanka and Jared opposed getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. Right. The president did it anyway. That they opposed this bizarre announcement last week that transgendered people would no longer be able to serve in the military. That surprised everybody, supposedly including those two who disagreed with it. Supposedly, reportedly, they did not agree with that first executive order on on the on, on, on the on the so-called uh, on the travel on the travel ban for people from certain countries. So you know they're in there. There there's there's a lot to be you know. In some cases, the the reporting is that they are moderating forces that lose the battles. So I don't think you can simply but when, if it comes to between, them. It's not about them. But Alan, if it comes between a fight between in this case, it seems the two camps happen to be. Uh, Steve Bannon and the Kushners, in a fight of those of that aspect, which they're diametrically opposed in many instances. We don't know that. You mean to tell me that Bannon 
was against the transgender tweet? I don't know. I I I I, I got to tell you something. Going off of understood, I, I will I only know, and you don't know either. I I would be shocked. This look, is a guy. Look, this is a guy. Look, we have to look. We have to be able to look at history and the history of Bannon. This is not a position that Bannon has been very favorable to. He has not been favorable to the gay and lesbian community by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I, you're right. I don't know. I don't know, Justin. You can condemn him all day long. I don't, I don't know. Fine, fine. But if it comes down to a, if it comes down to a choice, who does the president choose as his advisor? Well, he's listening to lots of voices. We've seen that. We know that. I just gave you some examples. But that's part of the problem. No, 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 no. No, I completely disagree with you on that. Well, I think that it's very important that a president hear all sides. This president, he doesn't listen very well. He doesn't read in depth, but he certainly hears disparate voices. Then he makes an impulsive decision and runs with it, announces it, and makes a huge mistake um, in how it's handled. And 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 I don't I don't see myself and maybe you're much wiser with greater insight than I have in battle after battle between Bannon and Kushner. Bannon's involved in the, in some number of issues that Kushner's not even involved in. And 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 don't forget about the vice president who does have a voice, who does sit in a, on some of these meetings, outside friends and other folks. This is not about Kushner versus Bannon. If that becomes a major, regular, constant source of difficulty, the president might have to decide. He's much more likely to say, Steve, you stay over here. Uh, Jared, you stay over here. You've got plenty to do, and you'll keep them apart. But I, I'm not thinking How that's going to happen. I don't think this president is that clever. It doesn't take cleverness. It's more a pra- matter of practicality. It's like, I don't want to hear you guys argue. So, Stay out of here, because this because this president has shown practicality. He doesn't want to. He, he he you know he he wants he fears conflict. He fears conflict. He wants everybody to be in agreement with him. This is a president that fears conflict. He knows everybody isn't in agreement. He's told. It is well known that his daughter has opposed some of his initiatives. The person he loves probably more than anyone in the world himself. His daughter. Oh, okay, that's true. <laughs> and, and and right up there with himself, his love of himself. And and there are times where he just basically says thank you, no. And we and, and and she's talked about how she sees her role of giving him as a yes, but he's the president. And you know, Advocate, you, you know, we talk about the practicality of this. You know, it, it leads us into the discussion of the situation with the other bad event, one of multiples that happened with the Trump administration was out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. While the Department of Defense is still working on a final, you know, plan and final policy statement, the president tweets out a policy statement that says transgenders are no longer welcome in the military, you're out of combine. Uh, that apparently took not only every service chief off guard, but really set a fire under Secretary of Defense General Mattis. That's got to be frustrating for a command officer. Was that a question? Yeah, yeah, yes, it was a question, Ken. 
Yeah, it's, that's frustrating for uh, that's 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 definitely a frustrating uh, component for uh, the, the leadership, the senior leadership level of the uh, of the armed forces. Um, I think it, it goes to underscore um, some of the concerns I have for General Kelly's longevity in, in his new role. Um, the boss, a good boss, doesn't. Good boss doesn't leave uh, people hanging out in the wind and trying to basically scratch their heads and you know, what, the, you know, what, the, what the heck what the heck is that going to I think, though, um, I took great solace um, in the fact that Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the, the senior general uh, officer across all the forces, stepped up and said, you know, until I get a piece of paper, uh, carry on. Business as usual. Do your job, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that's pretty much near as I can tell. Uh, General Mattis or Secretary Mattis has not uh, changed that stance, and I think there's probably a whole lot of conversations going on between the Pentagon and the White House and, and the staff. I guess after the flailix of uh, uh, the the, the uh, personnel change that we discussed the last thing was over with. But again, uh, I think part of the problem. That this president does not seem to understand or respect the fact that the country does not function the same way a private enterprise business does. That just because you pick up the phone and say a thing, in this case a Twitter um, keyboard, and say a thing, doesn't mean people are going to jump up and go and do that. It doesn't work that way. Ken, you're going to have to talk. Closer to the microphone, bro. You broke up on that last in 30 seconds. Sorry about that. Um, uh, to reiterate, to, to, to reiterate, um, I think this is part of the problem that the president doesn't understand yet that um, the, the United States of America does not function the same way one of his private enterprise companies does. Just because you pick up the phone, or in this case, a, um, um, a Twitter keyboard, and you, get, and you put out an edict. Uh, people aren't just going to fall in line and go and do that. It doesn't work that way. Okay. Uh, we're, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the really bad week at the White House. Uh, we still haven't talked about the, about the health care bill. We still haven't talked about Russia. We haven't talked about North Korea. Uh, we, this is still too much. We, this could be a three-hour show today, but it's not going to be. Uh, this is Becker Politics Live from the National Press Club. 14th Floor Studios in Washington, D.C. Live on Block Talk Radio. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics. Live on Block Talk Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. Caught my eye, my heart stood still. Once 
once again I seem to feel that old yearning And I knew the spark of love was still politics. We'll be back momentarily. Stay with us. Associated with 
a person becoming transgender. The Republicans thought they would prevail. They didn't. They lost by a couple of votes because a number of Republicans said, that's stupid. We don't agree with that, and we're not talking about more than a very modest amount of money. So they were trying to, there was an effort to get the White House involved to weigh in in support of that. And out of the blue, during that debate, came this tweet from the president saying, hey, if you're transgender, sorry, we got to focus on, on the business at hand of protecting the country you can't serve. It, there was no process that we're aware of that, that this went through. The president talks to different people, conservatives, staff read stuff, talks to people on the outside. We don't know where it came from. It was just bizarre. And it well, caught everybody, it caught everybody, off guard. everybody was caught off guard. Supposedly General Mattis, who was on vacation, the Secretary of Defense, was informed, but it's not clear <laughs> he would have been informed of how, when. We're going to find out, presumably. And, of course, because there's no written directive, there's nobody who's thought this through in, a, in any kind of a careful way, the military itself said, we haven't got any new orders, we haven't changed a thing. And they won't unless and until they get some specific orders. In the meantime, supposedly, we were well, talking wait, about Ivanka and Jared before, they, this caught them caught everyone off, guard. off guard. Now, may, maybe a few people in the, house, in, in the White House knew Maybe Steve Bannon knew. Maybe Jason Miller knew. Maybe Kellyanne Conway. We don't know. And everybody kind of went silent on it. And all it created was a firestorm of confusion, distress, well, here's what and, we, and, here's and, what we and, do. and anger. Here's what we do know is, is that, number one, that the tweet, the, the, you are correct, the tweet came out, went to the, uh, the Secretary of Defense was advised, but the Secretary of Defense put out a order that says, until you see an official set that order across message traffic, nothing changes. That's it. Until it comes out of my office signed by me, that is policy. At which time the service chiefs all said, we have our direction from the Secretary of Defense. We don't see any sort of message traffic that says change this policy, so it is operations normal. We well, continue on. Yeah, I mean, this is how it works. I mean, who knows what he thought? Yes, it's, it, it's entirely possible that he thought, yes, it will magically occur without anybody thinking through how one would do that, what the implications are for people currently serving, which is probably in the neighborhood of 2,500 or more people. We don't even have a good number because there's no obvious, easy, straightforward way to, 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 to count this. It was just, it was just, it's the kind of thing that a, that a chief of staff that functions in a, in a proper way of chain of command and careful consideration of policy change, policy directive, would stop and if we don't know it. if, if, if they knew about, about it. it. No, no, all I'm saying is that you need a process in place that everyone honors, including the president, in order to stop stuff like this, we don't know if this president is going to be willing to go along with a process that could stop stuff like this. All right, but we don't know. Let's be clear about one thing, and 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 and, and this goes to Ken's point: is had Donald Trump been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that was 
that had to answer to board members, that had to answer to shareholders, that had to answer to analysts on analyst calls, different, different prospects. This is a guy that has been a he has been the 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 strong arm of the organization. It is a family run business. It is a operation that he surrounds himself with yes people, does not do a good job of seeing a lot of or promote a lot of uh, civil dialogue in in contrast to Trump's orders. The, the reality is is we're never going to stop Trump from tweeting unless General Kelly has some sort of deal in place, which I hope he does, because what we heard from folks at the White House is he said, no more sign your access, everybody reports to me, uh, you know, we get some discipline here. That we know is true. What we don't know is, did he throw down the Twitter deal? Did he say, I'm cutting off your Twitter account? Because until that time happens, we're still going to see Twitter policy statements, like what we saw here, that's only going to cause confusion within, not only within the cabinet, but within everybody that serves that agency. There's no definitive chain of command here. Well, the president has got to acknowledge that Twitter is a problem, and he may or may not acknowledge that. I think there have been a couple of times where he said, yeah, I probably should have done that a little differently. Um, yeah, I should have done that a little differently. You don't, he doesn't have to eliminate his Twitter account. What he needs is a governor on the Twitter account. He needs a system in which a few smart people look at what he wants to send out, agree to it, then he can send it out. I don't know if he will I'll agree do you one to better. that. I'll do you one better. He needs, he needs a communication strategy that employs the use of all methods of comms, television, radio, and Twitter. He needs that. And that's what's been missing all the way throughout this. There's not been a communication strategy for this White House since day one except let Trump be Trump. And look how well that's worked yeah, but, out. Yeah, but Ken, here's the problem is you're talking about something about instituting a calm strategy. You're talking about coming in with a uh, you know, a hill strategy. You're talking about you're talking about things that only come with political maturity and political discipline, and that is something that has been grossly lacking in this administration. I would, say, I would say, you know what, I, I, would, I would only disagree with that slightly. Uh, I would say that uh, communications and, 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 and a strategy of operations is not something that's purely uh, in the realm of, of, of politics. Any, up, any, any functioning large organization uh, masters those abilities, and you're absolutely correct that Strategy of any kind has been noticeably lacking since January. Yeah, but Ken, here's, here's the thing: is whether you're trying to negotiate a contract deal or trying to negotiate a bill to get it through Congress because you campaign on this, i.e., healthcare bill. The reality is, this is this is an administration that has zero maturity, zero discipline, and zero capability of coming up with strategic views, strategic comms, and strategic operations to get a job done. The health care bill is a great, great example of that, where they had, you know, they tried several different ways and they still could not get it done because every time they tried to put something else out there, it looked like it was just slapped together with duct tape. 
if, if you're looking for me to argue with you, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, Alan, is is there anything right now that we can see? I mean, we look at the healthcare bill. That was a that was a huge failure in everything from Hill floor management to whipping votes to knowing exactly where to support, knowing exactly what the domain looked like. I was amazed. I mean, you, we've talked about this for weeks. I was amazed that they got as close as they did to something passing. They would have kept this alive. Um, and the only reason they did was because of the politics. There is not agreement among 50 Republican senators on what should be done. And that that's clear notwithstanding of even if they had gotten the 50 votes, there were, there were numerous people who said, I'm going to vote for this to move it forward. But I, if this, if, if what I'm voting for at one point, there was the so-called skinny repeal where they repeal certain pieces of Obamacare. If that's all we get at the end, I'll vote against it. So the, the whole effort here was to keep the thing alive. I had said in the past, and I continue to believe that, that the fail, the early failure did everybody uh, a favor because it pushed this issue aside so we can turn to other issues where we, I think, have a better chance of, uh, uh, of, of making more progress. Um, having said that, it's easy for me. I don't have to run for office. I'm not at risk of being challenged in a primary by some conservative who's furious at, at uh, uh, some series of votes that I have or who said, you Republicans are incompetent, you promised to repeal and replace. The problem is that the whole process, what it did was it generated more support for provisions of Obamacare than it had ever had in its seven-year history. Um, I don't, you know, for me, it wasn't uh, a, a so-called epic failure. It was definitely a failure, um, and it wasn't what uh, Republicans had been hoping for, but I think the hope was always naive as we got farther and farther into a program that more and more people were dependent on. It's not sustainable financially, but that's not the nature of the debate. But how is this less than anything but an epic failure for Republicans when you own the White House, you own the House, you own the Senate? There has been seven years of of saber-rattling saying we are going to – our main objective is to repeal and replace, and yet they, they literally were scrambling. To try and keep something alive at the it's, last minute during this. That's how it's, it's because it's, it's because of what of what Alan Alan just said. So the the senators the senators have a constituency at home, and whether they worry about getting primary or not, at the end of the day, they do have to worry about representing the folks back at home. And the, 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 the dirty, ugly secret about Obamacare and the ACA is that for most people, they are deriving some level of benefit from it that they are concerned about losing. You know, when, when, when this thing came out, I was possibly one of the harshest critics of it. I think it is, I think it's wrong today, even still, to basically force people to either get insurance or, or pay taxes. I think that 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 is that is a, a, a terrible thing uh, to throw on to people. You're, you're taking away choice. At the same time, at the same time, I now have three kids in my family that, unless the law changes, 
I can insure until they're age 26 at a greatly reduced rate than what they've been able to get on their own. So here, here on your program, you've got one of the harshest critics of Obamacare, but you know what? I like this particular piece of it, and that's the problem. That is the problem in a nutshell. This thing is, 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 down, in, is down in entitlement, and, uh, and I'm, on the, I'm on the low end of liking it, and there are other people that are much greater need than me, most of them Trump's supporters, by the way, that are all for this thing. And yeah, they're screaming, yeah, get rid of Obamacare, but at the end of the day, yeah, if you do that, boy, my, my health care prices are going to go up. And don't get me wrong, there are people who, are, who have seen their premiums skyrocket. I don't know the reason for that, but you know, my, near as I can tell, near as I can tell, with only a 17% approval rating of people wanting to get rid of Obamacare, those people are in the minority. Yeah, but here's the thing, Ken, is when you talk about Obamacare, and we've said, <clears throat> excuse me, we've said on this show many times, it is harder to take away something than to give it to someone. And the problem here is this has been so embedded and so ingrained and affects such a diverse population, surprisingly a population that largely supported Trump, it supports a largely diverse population that, quite frankly, can't afford to completely just be without uh, health care at all, and to wipe it out, even with a two-year moratorium, to wipe it out completely without something to replace it with, I think was hugely irresponsible, potentially. I think that that was a mistake. This whole thing has been botched. The Republican Party has had seven years to figure out a solution, and they couldn't do it. But the sec- in the second somebody says, bipartisan deal, everybody runs for the house, including Democrats. Democrats aren't completely uh, without blame on this either. But if you look at blame to go around, Alan Moore, who is who is the bigger who should the figure be pointed at? Well, we we have met uh, the enemy, and the enemy is us. Um, we want uh, we as a people, we uh, as a as an American public, want uh, we want what President Trump. Uh, promised. Um, we want cheaper, better health care for all. Um, and you can't get it. You can't get there from here. We have a very expensive system. We've got huge differences state to state. We've got huge differences, rich and poor. We do a pretty good job with the poor. The rich, you don't have to worry about. The problem is in this, in this great middle who get, who get hit year after year after year. And we have this lack of reality that this this dream world we operate in that somehow because we spend more than than most other countries do, we can miraculously by waving a magic wand um, get get more out better outcomes with with less investment. It isn't that simple. And the, the farther you get into an entitlement, as you just said, the harder it is to take away. The situation on the ground changes. Ken didn't like the mandate. I wanted a tougher mandate. We have a mandate that didn't work. And, and you know, so Ken and I had disagreements on this. I also felt that we should have done a lot more work to fix the pre-existing system before just adding millions to it. 
And once we went down that road, I feared for the position we're now in. I don't think it's not an epic failure because I've been predicting it for so long. I was surprised that they got as close to they did as keeping it alive, which was not the same as repealing and replacing. They wanted to get something through the Senate so they could throw it into a conference with the House to come up with a compromise that would not have passed by judgment. Hey, Justin, Justin? Yeah, go ahead, Ken. I have an answer for you. Who do you point the finger at? I'll point the finger at Barack Obama. I'll take a, I'll take a page from, from Donald Trump. And, and what I mean by that, when President Obama was campaigning uh, as candidate Obama, he was promising that he was going to repeal health care. When he got into it, much like with President Trump uh, is, is gone through, and he realized that the healthcare supply chain is a, is, a, is a very, very complex animal, he punted and he went after the insurance side. He didn't look at the entire chain. He didn't look at, he didn't look at malpractice. He didn't look at uh, pharmaceuticals. He didn't look at, uh, he looked at insurance, but he didn't look at um, uh, you know, how many doctors uh, do we have coming into the program versus exiting? He didn't look at the entire enchilada, and, but he went after the one thing that was easy. And, and I think because of that, you have what, we, what we're dealing with today. So I'll point the finger at him. And that should make my friends who've been calling me uh, a, a, a closet liberal um, happy now. But here's the thing is, you know, I look at it this way, that when the when the banks were making tons of money and they were, you know, we pulled back regulations, we let the dawns out on the banking industry, and they were just killing in profits, killing in high executive salaries, and then we had 2008, and then the Bush administration, ironically, came in and started the process to wheel them back in, kind of yanked the leash back, and we got it under control, and we made banking somewhat nicer for the end user, the the consumer, versus all about the banks. Why is it that we can't take the same approach and rein in the pharmaceuticals, the insurance industry, the the conglomerate healthcare providers, wheel them back in, regulate them a little bit, enough to at least let them know that government's there and the free-for-all Wild West show is done. Why can't we one do word. that? It's, it's, one, one word, money. You, you have to follow the money on this thing. I mean, their, their lobby is better and stronger than the insurance lobby was. Obviously. Who, who's it? The, the, those, agents, those, those portions of the healthcare chain that you just mentioned that you want to rein in. But you, you mean to tell me that... So, if it comes down to it, you mean to tell me that the banking industry doesn't have as strong a lobby as the healthcare industry? I didn't say healthcare. I said healthcare insurance. So you talked but about everybody. You involved. talked about Look. you talked about you talked about pharmaceuticals, um, and I don't remember the other one off, uh, right now because I'm, I'm trying to shape my argument here. The fact of the matter is, the reason that you've not seen the pressure uh, to, to basically. Uh, uh, cause change in, in those markets is because of the amount of money that is is uh, at play. I use as an example every morning, every morning between the hours of 7:30 and 9 a.m. Every other commercial is a pharmaceutical commercial. 
How much money does it cost to get that kind of airtime on a daily basis? That's big freaking money. You don't see that out of insurance companies. Of but here's the, yeah, but here's the thing is, and, and you do. You know, you look at during the daytime, you can't see enough AARP sponsored by United Healthcare on on Medicare supplemental insurance. You know, we we, we see a lot of 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 money being put around, but I go back to the question, Alan, I'll pose the question to you is why didn't why can't we do to big pharma, big medical, big insurance what we did to big bank? We regulate the hell out of all of these sectors. We don't just ignore them. We don't just. I'm not we're not that. that so. Yes, you are. That's exactly what I'm you're saying. saying that. <laughs> I'm not you are. Well, 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 then we, 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 you study what how how Obamacare works. It imposed a whole host of new rules and regulations. The problem with insurance at this point is. The, the the problem with the insurers and the thing that's going to require a bipartisan fix is that we enticed, we, the federal government, through the Obamacare law, we enticed uh, many insurance companies to go out into underserved areas to serve lower-income people with the promise that we were going to subsidize the policies that they would sell and that if they ended up, a given insurance company, with a group of pe- insured people who were sicker than we were expecting, and other insurance companies had a group that was healthier than expected, we would tax the ones that did well and share with the company, with the insurers that, that didn't do as well. This is a massive kind of, of uh, intrusion and regulation, but it also was based on predicting how people were going to act. Well, the mandate wasn't strong enough Lots of younger, healthier people said, I'm going to pay this financial penalty, which isn't that big. I am not going to buy this insurance. Besides which, if I get really, really sick, I'll go to a hospital and they have to take me in. It's, it's not because the insurers have so much power. The insurers are dropping like flies from a lot of these areas because they're not, not getting us. You're focused on the insurers. Well, you, what, 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 about, what, about, what about Big Pharma? What you're saying, you're, you, you want more regulation. I'm saying we're regulating the hell out of this and insurance companies. So you can tell me we're not putting getting the experience. We're price controls on pharmaceuticals. We, you know, <laughs> if you want to have a conversation about pharmaceutical companies, we can have that conversation. But that's You're all part of the major medical health care solution. You just can't separate them. What, what you said was, why don't we regulate all these guys more, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals? I said, we already regulate the hell out of them. That doesn't mean we're doing it in the right way or, or the wrong way. There's a, there's, there's, there's a lot behind what goes on in the pharmaceutical industry. They, they ended up supporting Obamacare because they were going to – give up a bunch of stuff. I'm not going to worry about ads and use that as a proxy. Not worried about the as a, as a proxy. But what, I am about, wait, what I am worried about is I am worried about that when we are paying $25 a pill for a, for a pharmaceutical product where in any other allied country, whether it's Canada, England, Germany, even Mexico, I mean, I can go to Mexico and buy stuff that is brand name cheaper than I can get it paid through Medicare. Sometimes you can. 
pharmaceutical companies, you're just grossly oversimplifying what the role of the federal government is, how, why this stuff occurs, why we in, Amer- in America choose to subsidize through higher prices most of the research that's involved in creating new pharmaceuticals. Very and then we got, I'm, I'm we got a bunch with the of, FDA rules. We got I'm familiar with the HHS rules. I'm very familiar with this. What I'm trying to say is that and, and and again, that's like saying that oh I said that banking wasn't regulated at one time. I know for a fact that they were regulated. What I'm saying is that we sat down and we put together a, a, a position when when we came up with TARP, when we came up with the consumer protection uh uh consumer finance financial protection bureau, when we came up with all that, that put pressure. It was enough to say, All right, the Wild West days, even though you were regulated we're just going to have, make sure that you know we're on your neck. That's it. And we haven't done that. Well, well, here, so if, we're gonna, if you're going to fall in love with current banking regulation, then you're going, to, you're going to be in conflict with just about every expert in the world of consumer finance who says we went too far and it's too hard for small businesses to get loans and that that has happened a negative impact on economic growth. We're always messing around. Too hard, too much regulation, too little regulation, back and forth. It's and and, and I don't think you're going to find uh, even even among the Democrats outside of Elizabeth Warren and a couple of others, you're not going to find uh, that many Democrats who love the current regulatory regime for banking. We are struggling and pushing this stuff constantly, regularly, and it's not like the, there aren't members of Congress in both parties who want to take another look at what we're doing with, with the pharmaceutical industry and if, and if there are further ways to constrict them. There's a lot more attention on, on what's happening with their, their contributions, some companies in the opioid crisis, or more, or, or, or more focused <laughs> on some of the truly bad actors, this guy, Shkreli, who bought rights to, to drugs yeah. that were cheap. They were so, and, then, and then sold them for 1,500% above the market price. And we're all over him. We're, we, we are all over him, but right now there is nothing stopping him from doing it. It's been almost self-regulation. That the, that the farmers haven't gone, you know what, there's a huge demand, EpiPen. Let's go to EpiPen. And, they, and they, they took hell in the media. They took hell from Congress. But what they didn't do is it's still legal for them to do it. So, so here you do get into an interesting question of, of whether the marketplace has any role at all. EpiPen is a good example because they were abusing their patent. Um, then they, then <laughs> under attack, uh, a couple of things happened. They started offering a lot more free, a cheap version, and there was a competitive version. So the marketplace came in. We could go in, I suppose. Um, God knows who would be running these agencies, the, the, the Pharmaceutical Price-Fixing uh, Bureau, who would, who would look at the thousands of pharmaceuticals that we have in this country and say, okay, 
we think your costs are this, your profit margin is that, this is what we're going to allow you. Um, it, it, it's, it is a balancing act that goes on. We're, America's struggling with that, but it's not just that they're bending over because the pharmaceutical industry says, yeah, uh, we, we're, we're going to buy you members of Congress. We got, we got phone calls held in on the line. 904 Area Code, you're on the Japanese market. with your question. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just don't go know ahead. when. I don't know when um, regulation, more regulation, you know, has ever helped anything. Anytime the government gets involved, it's going. You know, you're losing competition, and competition is really the uh, the factor they're going to bring prices down not more government regulation. Okay, very good. Thank you for the call. Justin, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I I think that um, the caller strikes on a a very good point, but there's exceptions to to every situation. Um, There's a tremendous amount of government regulation that goes into you getting on an airplane and flying somewhere. And I thank God for it because we have seen what happens when, when, when uh, those regulations aren't in place. But when it comes to fixing prices, uh, when it comes to saying where you can market and where you can't market, I don't think anyone on this call is saying that that's the case. Um, and, and to be clear, in my comments a few moments ago about looking at the entire healthcare chain, uh, I guess another way of saying it is we have a very complex system in this country. And rather than address the entire system, we picked one particular component and went after that. And we did not understand what the, uh, what the effects were going to be on the rest of the system when we started squeezing in on it. Look, the bottom line here is that we have, you know, we look at the health care issue as the problems with Obamacare, how do we, you know, how do we first replace it we always come up with a sensible solution. And then how do we repeal it? And then we'll figure it out in two years. That's asinine. You know, the thing about it is, and, and, and the thing about it is, it could be something as simple as dusting off the old Nixon-Kennedy bill or something as complex as, you know, going back to the drawing board with a bipartisan uh, group like, the group that's being suggested by the Problem Solvers Caucus, which is bipartisan, those guys are actually saying, you know, we're going to go back to the table and we'll figure this out. We will unscrew this problem. And God bless them for doing it, and God bless them for taking the initiative for it, because it's an initiative that neither Harry Reid or, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Mitch, that either Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer can do. It's nothing that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Ryan can do. These guys are going to go take it upon themselves, and they're going to take the initiative and take the leadership role. God bless them. I hope the rest of Congress takes a lesson from that. But the bottom line here is that there has been way too much bickering. And you know what? There is no reason why this should not have gone back to regular order. And that brings me up to my next topic is, was John, did John McCain betray his party, or was John McCain, McCain showing true political courage in his vote? on uh, the health care bill, Alan Moore. Well, I, I don't 
you know, I, I don't think you can call it a betrayal of his party because we've had a whole cluster of people who have expressed uh, reservations and have never coalesced around a particular idea. It was a bit of a surprise because the thought was, well, he'll 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 go with the party on this one. It's not a final vote on anything. But he signaled what he was going to do uh, the, the, the day before when he talked about the need to return to, to bipartisan solutions. When you go with one way where, where one party says my way or the highway, you end up with what we have with Obamacare, a, a, a law. They had no Republican votes. It becomes a major target for the opposition party. Maybe the, the notion was well, maybe the pendulum will swing back, will undo aspects of Obamacare, but certainly not all, uh, it, at least in terms of, of what, it, uh, what it seeks to do, because those things were popular. And those were things were popular with Republicans before Obamacare, as well as Democrats. It was just you know, arguably overreach by Obama uh, by, by, during Obamacare and by the, by the Congress. But, but it, it there's differences of opinion inside the Obama White House. People like Rahm Emanuel said, we don't need to shoot so high. We should do something more reasonable. Um, there, there were there were different voices, but the Congress played a big role. Now we're suffering from the aftermath of creating a program that we can't afford. That has triggered behaviors on the part of younger, healthier people that we did not anticipate. We have got to wrestle with that. But do you wrestle with that in an, in the narrow confines of those particular problems, or can we take a bigger, broader look? The president has said Medicare off the table. That's a huge piece of health care in America. And, and I don't see any stomach right now for a big comprehensive exercise, but that's what we need to do. And, and back to, to, to the question about, about John McCain, I said it before, and then they brought this up again. I thought they did Republicans a favor beating down something that I didn't think was going to happen. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can push it aside, deal with the political aftermath, and then set about trying to figure out in a bipartisan way some common objectives and and come up with with something where there's enough people that would say yes. It may be too late. Well, it may be too late now because, because the die is cast, the Democrats feel like they've got a really, really good issue for 2018, the harsh, cruel votes of, of, of uh, Republicans in the Such House. It was so botched. But I will say this. John, John, everything that John McCain said on his floor speech when the vote to uh, bring the bill to the floor vote yeah. was done, that to me was probably one of the most practical, dramatic speeches that everybody on that floor should have listened to. Uh, you know what? Joining us, 26 minutes left in the show, because better late than never on the show, Dan Littner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. Hello, everyone. Hello, Dan. Hello. Daniel, do you want to chime in? Do you want to chime in? I just wanted to chime in. That, that, that John McCain, I think, did not just the right thing, but also probably did right by his party. Uh, for the three Republicans that all voted no were all safe in their own special way. Uh, John McCain, because he's John McCain. Susan Collins, because she's wildly popular in her state. And by the way, uh, Donald Trump lost Maine. And Lisa Murkowski, who, after losing the Republican nomination for Senate, run, 
won a write-in election. So all of those folks took the votes that others might have wanted to, but also wanting to avoid the wrath of the the Trump base, which unfortunately they are kind of they they, they are unpersuadable with facts. So whatever coalition comes that I hope does come is going to come absent that Trump base, which is going to be an, an interesting interesting bit of politics. I'm sorry, go ahead, Admiral Ken. Completely agree with with, uh, with Dan's comments, yours, Justin, and, and Alan's. And my only add is I'm proud to be a fellow alumnus of, uh, of uh, the same school as John McCain. Okay, and <laughs> appreciate that. The, the, the bigger question, though, Alan Moore, is does the death of the GOP health care bill in such a dramatic fashion hurt the administration in the midterms? I don't know. You know, I, that, that's what's – first of all, let, let, let the record show that it's not 100% dead. There's like 99% dead. There's still a little bit of talk. Uh, Lindsey Graham and some others are, are talking about – trying to keep this alive and throw it back into a conference with the House, which all of which, in my mind, only postpones the inevitable, which is failure. But, but we'll see. Um, it, it, this thing really, really, is not a crash card. Well, it's really hard to know if things that happen now that uh, are going are gonna to be politicized um, are going to be harmful a year from now to Republicans who are getting ready to run for re-election, particularly in the House. Um, I don't know how it's going to play. The the members of the House and the handful of Republicans in the Senate who are up in 2018 are obviously nervous that they're going to be uh, uh, draw a primary uh, opponent. But it's, it's interesting because the complaint is not substantive. The complaint is political. The complaint is not all about here are the five things we absolutely hate about Obamacare that we thought would get fixed and weren't. It's more the notion that this big, this invasive initiative under the Obama presidency that messed around with health care is so bad on its face, I don't know the details, um, that we needed to repeal and replace. We have a Republican Congress, and it couldn't do that. What a bunch of losers. And, and I don't know uh, whether that political narrative of the last seven years will, will play the dominant role or whether this newly popular by a majority uh, uh, set of individual aspects of Obamacare will, will, will rise up and cause people to say, well, you know, some of this isn't so bad. I'm not going to be so angry because Uncle Charlie – ever had insurance and now he's got it or Aunt Susie and the, and the kids now have coverage which they didn't have. But you know Admiral Ken when we look at who the players were I mean you know going off of Alan Moore's point uh, and Dan Littner's point Murkowski and and, uh, and Collins are relatively safe I don't think they'll get burned by that McCain, McCain if he finishes his term will not seek another, obviously, and he's basically just dropped the mic and done what he did. The concern is over people like Ben Sass, who initially had opposition, Jeff Flake out of Arizona, who initially and has 
addressed opposition. Uh, Dean Heller out of New Mexico. You look at those folks. Nevada. I'm sorry, out of Nevada. I'm sorry, out of Nevada. You look at those yeah, you're, folks, you're also leaving and, out Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania. These are Republicans that were actually being thoughtful in their approaches we to can, things we can include, that, we can that, that, that don't we, want to deal with the wrath of the Trump voters. But we can, but here's the thing is, you know, when you look at, you know, the rumors are that Jeff Flake's already going to have a, uh, a primary opponent and that apparently now... Uh, the president's so ticked off at people like Sass and Portman, they're going to try and primary them. Is, have we got to a point where those six names that we just mentioned are really going to show the political courage to say, hey, you know what, you want to come after me? If you're feeling froggy, jump. Is, well, is, I, is think, I think as long as, as long as the president's approval ratings are going to uh, continue to hover, around you know, 31, 32, 34%, depending on which poll you're looking at, I think that more people will be willing to roll the dice. Uh, if this vote had taken place um, in the first couple of weeks or even the first couple of months of the Trump presidency, I wonder, I wonder aloud, uh, would we have seen the same uh, type of response on the part of uh, the Senate? So uh, I really think that you know when you look when you're looking ahead at midterms, and you, you, you take into consideration some of the comments that we, we discussed in the first half of the show, if the if the chaos continues, if the poll numbers continue to to slip, I think that more and more members of the House and the Senate are going to be willing to step up and say, you know what, I'm not okay with that, and you want you want to primary me, bring it on, big guy, bring it on. But if, if his right. if his numbers start to change, uh, I think they're going to slip. They're going to slip the, the load a little bit. Uh, it's actually a word yeah, you could. You know, hold on, Dan. Alan Moore first. Yeah, just just uh, two two thoughts here uh, on the risk of being primary. One of the things is the, the president makes a difference here. The more he is critical by name of particular senators, um, uh, some curiously he he actually helps. Susan Collins and, and Lisa Murkowski probably say, yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. You're, 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 you're helping me out. Uh, neither of them is up next year anyway. John McCain just got reelected, and he'll be, I mean, sadly, uh, lucky if he's still alive uh, six years from now. I don't mean to, right. to, to, to be macabre here, but it's just this is a very serious, very serious cancer um, that he has. As for others, the president can, can do harm. He can encourage um, people to be to be primaried, but it's not clear that he's going to help uh, maintain a, a a Republican Senate if he does that. And he's going to need these people again and again and again. There are things that that he just has got to be that somehow he, he I hopefully he can be reined in on a bit because he can do real damage. And uh, you know Jeff Flake has just written a book, which is interesting, because he's up next time, up next round. Um, and a, a book that's fairly critical of, of today's so-called conservatives, um, uh, who are not conservative in a, in a historical way, and also uh, apparently somewhat fairly critical of the, of the president. That's a risky maneuver. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. As people are increasingly empowered as the president, as, as, as has been said, 
as the president's popularity declines, um, these guys realize, hey, I've got a divided electorate of people who support me, some people who still love the president and others who will vote for me but would never vote for pre- uh, President Trump again. Uh, go ahead, uh, Dan Lipner. Well, yeah, and on that front, and this is a question I actually don't know the answer to, there's also a question of open and closed primaries, meaning whether or not independents uh, are, are allowed to vote or if people from other parties are allowed to vote in your primary. It depends on which state, and I honestly don't know what the rules are in Arizona. On top of that, like Ed, we mentioned Lisa Murkowski, who, who won while losing the Republican nomination, but Joe Lieberman also did the same in Connecticut. Uh, with the, 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 the Trump 30-some-odd percent is not a clear winning majority, especially statewide outside of a handful of states. Um, Dan, so Dan, the question is... Dan, let me just jump in. Dan, let me just jump in. You talk about the 36%. That's not what concerns everybody. What concerns everybody is the 85% that would vote for Donald Trump again, knowing what they know now. Those are the ones that got right, out and actually got but, this guy elected. Those are the ones we have to worry right. about. But but this is also the point that it's – but by the numbers, Trump didn't actually turn well, out many new voters. In the primary, he did, but in the general, he didn't. So whether or not that carries through in an off-year election, who knows? Obama had absolutely no coattails, and there's no evidence – that the Obama machines produce anything on off-year elections. So maybe it's presumptuous that Trump will, will do anything special in the off-year as well. Should it be paid attention to? Absolutely. But to say that, that they are this huge force, other than people who yell and scream and listen to themselves, and that's still unclear. Right. Well, uh, we haven't even talked about the situation in Venezuela. Uh, for those who are not following, uh, President Maduro, who is a wholly owned subsidiary of deceased former President Hugo Chavez, uh, has now gone full dictatorship, calling questionable elections, redoing, uh, the, uh, redoing the entire Constitution to make it more dictatorial for him, uh, has suspended a lot of the powers inside the National Assembly. Bad situation, hundreds of people now dead. Uh, as a result of civil infighting. And as of last night, in a very scary move, uh, Venezuelan secret police uh, took away out of their own homes political opposition to Maduro, and their locations are still unknown. <laughs> Excuse me. Alan Moore, how dire is the situation in Venezuela, you know, and how concerned should America be? Well, it's a huge, it's a huge mess. It's an economic disaster. It's, uh, it, it creates an enormous amount of instability in, uh, in 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 the region. And important, curiously enough, oil-producing country. It was Hugo Chavez, the largest oil reserves in the world. Hugo Chavez um, uh, so decimated the the operating infrastructure of the oil industry and of that economy. With uh, with huge promises and basically uh, a desire to share the oil profits around the world, when when oil prices were very high and little attention to building up the the human infrastructure um, and physical infrastructure of 
of Venezuela in order to try to increase his influence in Central and South America, um, that it, it, when oil prices fell, uh, the house of cards fell around uh, uh, Venezuela, and it was up to Maduro to, to pick up the, piece, the pieces. His instincts were dictatorial, autocratic, uh, following in, in, uh, in Chavez's footsteps. Um, Any time there is instability in a big country, it poses risks for us. Refugees get created. Um, uh, physical damage uh, occurs. People's lives are threatened. Uh, the U.S., I think, has pulled everybody out of Venezuela, uh, the U.S. government, and, and, and urges people not to travel there. Um, it, it, it's hard to know what all the implications might be. There's nothing good about this, period. Uh, Admiral Ken, does, does the situation in Venezuela pose a national security problem to the U.S.? Is this something that the Defense Department's got their eye on? Uh, well, the Defense Department will, will we, we tend to kind of watch everything uh, just so uh, no one can say uh, we were surprised. Um, from, a, from a pure national security perspective, in the, and I think in the context you mean, I, I don't think this is... Uh, uh, this is beyond what Alan has described. This is something that we're concerned about right now. North Korea is the big guy, the big bogey on the board right now. Dan Lichner, the uh, White House announced today that they were imposing some pretty serious sanctions uh, against Maduro's Venezuelan government for the illegal elections. Is that going to be enough, or do we have to take a look at other options? Uh, the answer is no, it won't be enough, and no, we don't need to look at other options. Uh, I mean, the government and other, the U.S. government, our, our fingerprints aren't on this problem. The uh, Hugo Chavez created this mess, and the current government is exacerbating it. Uh, this is one of those times where this ain't our fault. And it, it's going to have to work itself out. And will we have a hand to play in fixing it? Probably. Uh, but but as far as I'm kind of with Ken. This is not this is not a huge national security issue for us, at least in the in the in the shortest of terms. But in the larger global politics of it, yeah. I mean, the dominoes fall in odd directions when chaos ensues. So we'll we'll see what happens. Very good. Uh, Admiral Ken, back to you. The you know the other item we didn't talk about because we were we're literally doing this in lightning round because we, there's just so much to talk about. We'll talk about some of these next week. Uh, Admiral Ken, the North Koreans launched what the DoD has classified as a true intercontinental ballistic missile. This one having fibs, trajectory control, and the range to potentially hit as far away as Chicago. At the same time this weekend, the U.S. tested their THAAD system uh, throughout the Pacific. Is is one and done enough to just kind of keep us at bay, or do we seriously have to look at a decisive strike against missile platforms in North Korea to shut this down? Well, so... Gosh, um, great question. Um, the first thing I'll say is that you know the, the threat is now real and verifiable. Um, two, 
the key to success without firing a shot, unfortunately, is China. Equally unfortunately, uh, during the run-up to the last election, uh, the president was quoted uh, as saying some pretty harsh things about the Chinese, though I think they deserve it. Um, this, is, this has created a uh, relationship management problem for the administration. If they think that China is going to do anything um, decisive to, uh, to keep North Korea at bay. Um, the good news is, uh, with Aegis at, sh- at sea, uh, Thad ashore, uh, we've got probably you know the, the best missile, best defense against ballistic missiles uh, that uh, this country has seen to date. Um, unfortunately, uh, not, nothing is 100%. Uh, the, the North Koreans have not started uh, mass producing these missiles yet. Uh, the one getting through and neutral a place uh, like Chicago or even hidden someplace in the desert is enough to say, look, you know, we've got a serious problem here. Uh, I, I think the last thing you're going to ever hear me do uh, on the air is, uh, is advocate uh, a strike uh, by U.S. military forces because I don't think I, even at this point in my life, um, I, I know enough to be able to say, you know, that this would be a good thing to do. Uh, I do. I will say this, though. Congress, uh, uh, the, the House tried to, I think the House passed a $1.6 billion bill last week to build a wall down uh, on, on the southern border. I think that money would be better used in uh, beefing up a missile defense system. Well, very good. Very good. Uh, Alan Moore, uh, does the Defense Department now seriously put the options of military? Intervention. They have to. They they they, they always have. Always have. Um, always have. As Ken says, you know, God, you, you want you you want this to be the last resort. You want to figure out a way not to do this, not 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 least to be because it unleashes forces beyond our control. Not just with South Korea that would that would against whom the retaliation. Uh, the big major retaliation would occur, and likely millions would be at risk, um, uh, at physical risk, uh, life and death risk. Um, and and then who knows beyond that what the North Koreans might do? Um, they've got a nuclear weapon. Well, we don't want them to shoot one over to America on an ICBM. They're not quite there. They may be as little as a year away from being able to do that. That's a debate. That's a de- highly debated subject uh, uh, in, in the U.S. intelligence uh, services, and you can find people that say no because here are the ten things that they haven't done yet. And you need to do all of those. Fine. Um, I, I'm not going to d- debate the details. All I'm going to say is they there are other ways to deliver nuclear weapons, and if you feel like you're going to be attacked or are attacked or are harmed in a significant way then you put one on a boat and you sail it into a harbor and you try to detonate. They're just, they're, they're, they're all sorts of scary, terrible scenarios, which is why America working side by side with the Chinese and to some extent the Russians, um, uh, but particularly the Chinese is so critically important. It dwarfs any other bilateral issue that America has with China. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, oh, go ahead. One little, 
breaking piece of news, was that the piece of news for the administration, Christopher Ray, the FBI director nominee, was approved 92 to 5 this afternoon wow. in the Senate. So the president was able to come up with a nominee that enjoyed widespread bipartisan support. Fantastic. Good for everyone and good for the FBI. And the over-under on how quickly he throws him under the bus is down two weeks. And he better not try and get a, 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 a big Jeff Sessions. That won't happen. Did, didn't hear what you said, Apple Ken, but that's okay. I'm sure it was prolific. It was brilliant. 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 Brilliant statement, Apple Ken. Thank you. Uh, with that, on behalf of Admiral Ken Carradine and Dan Littner on the phone, uh, in studio with me, uh, Alan Moore, special thanks to uh, our, our junior producer over here, Mr. Schuster, Taylor Schuster, who's going back to Ole Miss next week. Yeah, we're going to miss you. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out with us this summer. Uh, on behalf of the rest of the backroom politics team, we are the best political talker you've never heard of live here at the National Press Club here in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back live next Tuesday here from the National Press Club. Hopefully everybody will be around the table, uh, and we will continue to monitor the continuing chaos coming out of the White House, both domestic and foreign policy. But with that in mind, I want to say thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Bye-bye, America. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.